Well, as Steve said, I was a pastor. It was actually for uh, five years down in Dover, New Philly area. And as I was preparing this week, um, I was reflecting on those five years that I spent down there. I have a three-ring binder. Uh, It's not really very thick, but it's a binder that contains really a history of uh, the time that my wife and I and our family spent in Dover. It's a history of uh, various things with regards to the church. There, as I was going through it, I was reminded of the various opportunities that I had within the church uh, to minister to people, whether it was through preaching or teaching, counseling, um, just spending time together. And there were reminders as well of times that I was able to spend um, ministering outside of the church body in the community, um, going to the middle school once a week and hanging out with the kids during their lunch break. There were many things, many opportunities to minister um, in that area. This binder also contains many reminders of God's grace uh, from the time there, names of people who had come to saving faith. There were reminders of people and their spiritual growth and how they were growing in the Lord. As I reflected, I was reminded that the work of a pastor is one that is full of great joy and many blessings that come from God. But at the same time, it's also a work that is full of many difficulties and great sorrows. And the binder that I have contains those as well. There was a couple in the church. They actually started attending right about the same time that I began pastoring the church. And they were a couple that brought both joy and sorrow to the ministry. The husband was an unbeliever. He was actually a drunkard and an adulterer. His wife was a professing believer, although she was very stunted in her spiritual maturity because she had sat under false teachers for the majority of her adult life. I spent many hours counseling with them, calling him to saving faith and correcting her false doctrine. And after probably about a year and a half of late night phone calls and difficult counseling times, God was merciful and he called this man into the kingdom and saved him by his grace. And it's one, it was one of those situations where there was no doubt that he had changed. His life began to change. His thinking began to change. His desires began to change. But even more than that, his very demeanor changed. For those of us in the church who knew him, we could just look at him and we saw that it was a different man. He was a new creation in Christ. The old things passed away. Behold, new things had come. We continued to meet together. But now it was not times of counseling per se, but times to study the scripture together as he was desiring to know the word better. It was obviously a great time a great and joyous time in the church, and especially for myself as a pastor. And unfortunately, it didn't last long, only a few months before things changed. This couple wanted to renew their wedding vows because their, their marriage up to that point had been kind of a farce. He was an unbeliever. She was a believer. They were unequally yoked. And so they wanted to do it over. And so we had a, a wedding ceremony and renewed their vows, and then they went on a honeymoon to Virginia 
to the place where they had desired to live when they first got married but were unable to. And when they came back from that trip, they wanted to move there. They wanted to really start again and have a do-over with their marriage and go right back to the beginning. And I understood their desire to do that. I really did. But I counseled them against moving to Virginia. He was a brand new believer and a recovering alcoholic, and he needed the support of his church family, those who knew him well. And while he had been growing in, an, in his understanding of God's word, she was beginning to revert back. She began arguing against the truths of Scripture. And this was a woman who had dealt with a sin of anxiety and worry that was a tremendous debilitating thing in her life. And she had been getting better, but now she was getting worse again. And what I didn't know was that they had a friend in Virginia who was sending them Bible studies, except he was part of a church that taught false doctrine. They did not hold to the simplicity of the gospel or in, to salvation by faith alone. They taught that you could lose your salvation if you didn't do things right, that Christ was always watching for your works to make sure you were worthy to enter into heaven someday. And I began to wonder if she was actually a believer because her life was not showing it. She was beginning to question sound doctrine and pushing work salvation. And so I called her to examine herself to see if she was really in the faith, as Paul will do in the second letter to Corinthians that we've been studying later on in the letter. I called her to simple faith in Christ, not only for her salvation, but for her life in him. Not to rely on her works to save her or to keep her saved. And ultimately, they made the decision to move to Virginia. And when they did, I pleaded with them not to go. But the damage was already done. They were not happy with my counsel. They were angry with me. They would not return my phone calls. Joel and I spent a good amount of time on their front porch one day, knocking on the door. They were home, and they wouldn't answer it. And worse than that, they began meeting with another couple in the church and telling them of all the wrongs I had done to them. They left the church and eventually moved to Virginia. And the other couple stayed. And what I didn't know is they began slandering me to the rest of the body. And grant you, there were a total of about 50 people in the church, and a lot of those were children. It was not long before the second couple left the church, and little did I know the damage they had done. The great joy of seeing someone come to saving faith and grow in the Lord was followed by this tremendous sorrow and hurt, these broken relationships, these false accusations. The reality is being a pastor is a great and wonderful privilege that is full of great joys and blessings from God, but it also is a great battle. It is definitely a work of warfare. Ministry is a battle that is very difficult. And we'll see in our text this morning that that is what was going on with Paul and the Corinthians. They were in the midst of some battles. And this morning we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 6, 1 to 13. So if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. And I want to begin by reading this text. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 to 13, Paul says... 
working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that, uh, Lord, you have called us into your kingdom. Lord, not just to be saved, but to do your work. And Lord, we know that it is a battle. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not be naive. Lord, that we would not be unaware of the schemes of the enemy. But Lord, that we would be able to identify them. And Lord, fight back. Lord, may you be glorified this morning by the preaching of your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you would have to teach us, that you would change each and every one of us, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, and that you would transform us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, our text this morning is a reminder that working for God is a work of warfare. And what we find in this passage is really three different battles that were going on that were being waged in this war. First, we see the battle for the soul, which is Paul's urgent plea in verses 1 to 2. And then in verses 3 to 10, he follows with a battle for truth as he defends his ministry. And finally, in verses 11 to 13, we'll see a battle for unity as Paul calls for reconciliation between himself and the Corinthian believers. So we're going to first look at this battle for the soul. So Paul, last week, if you remember from Steve's message, Paul had just um, gone through this whole idea of reconciliation to God. He had called them to reconciliation. And now he makes this urgent plea, and he says, Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Now, as we think about the grace of God and receiving it in vain, we first have to ask ourselves, what 
what does Paul mean when he, when he speaks of the grace of God? Is he speaking of salvation? Don't receive salvation, this grace that God has given to us in vain? Or does he mean something else? And so I go back to some other scriptures where Paul has brought this up. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15.10 in his last letter. Paul says this, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. In this passage, Paul is speaking of the grace of God that is with him, and he speaks of it in the sense that it caused him to labor all the more. Later in our uh, letter of 2 Corinthians, in chapter 8, uh, Paul will begin to speak of the grace of God that was poured out upon the Macedonian believers, and he will follow by telling us about how in their great affliction and in their deep poverty, they overflowed with generous giving for the sake of other believers in other places. Just what we should do with Tajikistan. The grace of God that Paul speaks of has to do with living out our faith. While it was great that the Corinthians had heard the gospel and professed faith in Jesus Christ, a mere profession proved nothing. It's interesting. You can go through your entire life thinking you're a believer and realize one day that you're not. There's a lady that attends a church in Dover. One of the people had been there the entire time I was there. She was a believer. She, led, she didn't lead worship, but she played piano and keyboard. She was a professing believer and did the work of God. And yet, just a couple of months ago, in a study, a same study that we had done early on in the church, my brother Dan, who's there now, did again. And as she was going through that study in her home, Preparing her study for that week, she came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The mere profession meant nothing. It proved nothing. As we learned last week from Steve's message, with salvation comes transformation. Christ was made sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so Paul urges these Corinthian believers not to receive the grace of God in vain. He wanted their lives to show the fruit of a changed life. He was concerned that they were in danger of having received the grace of God in vain because they were listening to the reports. They were listening to the false teachers. And Paul, to show the urgency of the situation, goes back to Isaiah 49.8 and quotes scripture. Isaiah 49.8, Paul quotes it. It says, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul adds the urgency to the situation. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul is basically saying, this is it. This is the time that Isaiah was speaking of. There's urgency that you don't receive the grace of God in vain because God may not always be willing to listen. God may not always be willing to save the sinner. He may not always give you the opportunity to live out your faith. The Corinthians were living in the era of salvation just as we are today. Christ had died in their place. They had heard the message and now they needed to make a decision. Would they follow the simple truths of the gospel that were taught by Paul and his companions or would they believe the lies of the false teachers? 
And these false teachers were not just leading the Corinthians into false doctrine. They were attempting to discredit the truth by discrediting the one who had taught them. And so Paul follows this urgent plea with, an evident, with, a, with evidence of a faithful ministry. He turns from this battle for the soul to a battle for truth. Look at verse 3. Paul says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. He continues in verse 4 and states that, Hey, we're servants of God. We have commended ourselves in every way. To commend means to prove, to put on display. Paul is saying, we have proven ourselves. We have displayed the faithfulness of our ministry in every way possible. And having stated this truth, that they were servants of God who had a faithful ministry, he backs it up with proof. The first proof that Paul offers up is his great endurance. He endured through difficult circumstances. To endure means to stand firm. He stood firm and continued to proclaim the gospel in spite of everything, every difficulty, every challenge that he faced. He did not look at his circumstances and say, you know what, I must be doing something wrong. He didn't look at his circumstances and go, you know what, I don't like how hard this is. I'm just going to stop preaching the gospel and then I won't have to deal with any of this. No, he stood firm. He endured. He endured through all these difficulties. There were many. He lists them out here, and there's some different categories that he lists. The first are natural um, difficulties, what he calls afflictions, hardships, and calamities. These are things that just happen in life. A shipwreck, sickness, hardships of all kinds. And then he also faced hardships and difficulties at the hands of others. He speaks of beatings imprisonments and riots. Though Paul had done nothing wrong, he endured and continued to faithfully proclaim the truths of the gospel. He even endured through labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. These are things that are really self-imposed. The things that, the decisions that Paul made, the things that he decided to do caused. Labors, he worked harder than all of them. He labored hard not only in the work of the ministry itself, but also as a tent maker to support the ministry. It reminds me of, of what Pat was speaking of with Tajikistan, with these men who want to support the work of the ministry by working themselves. And that no doubt causes sleepless nights as you're wore out beyond the point of exhaustion. Sleepless nights not only from, from the work, but also from, no doubt, the concern for the churches. Paul oftentimes went hungry because in that day when he traveled from place to place, there wasn't a Taco Bell on every corner. Paul endured great difficulties and yet continued to do so, to do ministry with a godly character, another proof of the faithfulness of his ministry. Verse 6, he says he endured with purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness. These all speak to his inward character, who he was. Think about the hardships that he just mentioned, imprisonments, beatings, riots, and yet he did the ministry still with patience and kindness. He did this, as he says, 
through the power of the Spirit, through genuine love. There's no doubt that Paul, when he speaks of genuine love, he's speaking of his love for the believers, for the people, that he, the churches he was concerned with. But there's no doubt he was also concerned for those who were lost and without Christ, even for his enemies that were doing these things to him. And his inward character was shown through his outward actions. Paul says that his ministry was proven by truthful speech and the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Paul's already said in this letter that he did not use cunning speech or craftiness, but just proclaim the truth of God by the power of God, plainly and simply. He did not go into spiritual battles with the wisdom of man, but instead he went with a life of righteousness that his very life showed that the attacks of the enemy were not true. His righteous life proved it. So his faithful ministry was proven by endurance through difficulties, by a godly life because of his godly character. It did not matter to Paul the circumstances that he faced, or even, as we'll see as we go through these next verses, the opinions of others. A faithful ministry is not determined by what others think of it. A faithful ministry is proven by a right assessment, by the truth. And so in verses 8 to 10, Paul contrasts the responses of the world, the the accusations of the false teachers with the truth about the ministry. He begins with the responses to the ministry. He says that, you know, there were times when the ministry was honored. Other times it was dishonored. Times when it was praised. Times when it was slandered. Back in chapter 2, Paul said that the gospel was an aroma. It was a fragrance of death to some, but at the same time, a fragrance of life to others. It's no wonder that some honored the ministry while others slandered it. A negative assessment, again, does not prove the legitimacy of a ministry. These false teachers love to focus on the outward, the physical. They love to focus on the here and now, this world. It's as if they were saying, look at Paul. He cannot be from God. Look, he's an imposter. He doesn't, no one even knows this guy. I mean, really, the guy is constantly being punished. He's been in danger of death how many times? What a sorrowful life he leads. Does God really work through someone like that? Absolutely not. Don't you know that God wants you to be happy? God wants to bless you immensely? If Paul was really working for God, he would have the blessings of God. That's what the the false teachers were telling the Corinthians. And while there was truth in many of the statements that they were making, that did not change the fact that Paul was truly working for God. Yes, it's true, he was poor. It's true he was punished. It's true he was in danger of death. But he was still a minister for God. Because even when the difficulties made him sorrow, made him sad, he was always rejoicing. Paul says how many times about rejoicing? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's because Paul was always rejoicing. Though he was poor, his ministry was making people rich. How does a poor man make someone rich? He can't except if he's giving them the treasures of God, 
eternal treasures that are worth far more than anything that he could have in this world. Though Paul possessed nothing, he possessed everything. He may not have had the things of this world, but he was a co-heir with Christ. And one day he would be ruling the world with Christ and with all of us. He would have all of it. And yet more importantly than the things that he could have and did have physically are the things that he had spiritually. He had the Holy Spirit guiding and directing him as he proclaimed the gospel. He had the hope of the eternal life that lies ahead for those who are in Christ. Obviously, Paul's life and ministry was not easy. His work was hard and caused him great difficulties, and yet, through every circumstance, he faithfully endured. And I think this is a good time to pause for some application. How do we evaluate a pastor? How does Pat evaluate a ministry in Tajikistan? How do we evaluate a church? Do we look at the outward circumstances? Do we look at how much their giving is? Do we look at how many people have come to join the ministry? Do we look at the numbers in attendance? Do we even look at what time they walk in the worship service in the morning? I can tell you as a pastor, those things are tempting to evaluate ministry upon. But they're not what we should be looking at. Do we evaluate ministry on how unbelievers respond to the type of worship music we play or to the message that we proclaim? No. We respond. We we don't worry about how those responses are. Instead, we evaluate based on the message that is proclaimed. Is it proclaiming Jesus Christ? We evaluate based on the leadership of the ministry. Do they have a godly character and are they enduring through difficulties good times and bad. Most importantly, are they pointing people to Jesus Christ? The work of the ministry is hard. For Steve, for Todd, Josh, Adam's not here this morning. For all of you who are in any type of leadership in this ministry, I would I would ask you to be encouraged this morning by this message and to continue to faithfully serve Christ no matter the circumstances. And I mean no matter the circumstances, not just if they're bad to faithfully endure and to evaluate the ministry, but even if things are going well, look at the ministry and find your joy and encouragement in Christ and not in how things are going. And as a congregation, never forget the battle that our leaders face. They face many attacks from the enemy. Their work is a warfare. And yet even as I say that, I'm reminded that that's not the point that Paul's making in this text. That's not the most dangerous battle for the church. The real battle is between each one of us and the enemies of Jesus Christ. In our text, the real battle was the battle between the false teachers and the Corinthian believers, even though I don't think they knew it. They didn't even know they were in this battle. Paul did not defend his ministry because he wanted to be honored for what he had endured. He did not defend the ministry and say these things because he wanted people to feel sorry for him. No more than I want anyone here to feel sorry for the story I told at the beginning and about the things that happened in the ministry in Dover. That's not the point that I was making, and it's not the point that Paul is making here. Rather, the point that Paul is making is about the real battle, the battle that was most important. Paul battled for the truth about his faithful ministry so that the Corinthians would have ammunition against the accusations of the false teachers. The real battle was for unity in the church. 
The false teachers were causing doubt, causing disunity between Paul and the Corinthian church. They were creating distrust and disunity. And so that's, what it, that's why in those last three verses that we'll cover this morning, Paul gives this plea for reconciliation. He battles for it. Verses 11 to 13, he says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as the children widen your hearts also. We see Paul's great love for the Corinthians in these verses. Paul says, I've, I haven't held anything back. I've spoken freely to you. Our hearts are wide open. We're not hiding anything. We've done you no wrong. Paul loved them, and his love remained for them even in the midst of their doubt because he loved them like children. He was, in a sense, their spiritual father. And if you're a parent here this morning, you understand that kind of love. No matter what happens with our children, we love them and desire the best for them. And the same was true with Paul. And I think you'll find the same is true with the pastors of this church. And yet, in the midst of this great love that Paul had shown them, in the midst of of everything he had done for the Corinthians, they were restricted in their affections in return. They were restricted because they had this doubt. They had this distrust that was created by these false teachers. So they were cautious. They were holding back. They weren't letting Paul in like they should. And so Paul says, in return, widen your hearts also. Hey, I've given you this love. Love me in the same way in return. Restore the relationship that we had at first is essentially what he's saying. I told you at the beginning of this message about this story of these two couples that created disunity in, in the church who slandered me to the rest of the body. They, like the false teachers in Corinth, caused great distrust and disunity, and I had no idea what was happening. And I had one of the ladies of the church who came to me she had been battling with this for weeks. She had heard what was said about me. She was told things about me from these couples. And she was wavering. And she came to me and she asked me if what was said was true. And I asked her one simple question. I asked her, does that sound like something I would do? And her immediate response was no. All she needed to do was step back and think about what she knew about my character and my ministry. And I tell you that story because it demonstrates for today what Paul had dealt with so many years ago. I tell you that story because I want you to understand that there is a battle for unity in the church each and every day, even if you are not aware of it. And, there, and the reality is when there is disunity in the church, the church cannot be effective in the world in the community, and even amongst one another. And so as we consider this text this morning, I want you to consider a couple of things. Ask yourself, are you contributing to the unity of the church by actively living out your faith? Or are you contributing to the disunity of the church? Do you willingly listen to, do you willingly spread gossip that you hear? 
about leaders in the church or about others? Do you listen to, to teachers who maybe are teaching some kind of doctrines that are different than what the church teaches? I'm not saying that this church has every doctrine necessarily correct, but you should be double-checking it and trusting your leaders and seeking their guidance and not someone outside of the body. Is there disunity even now between you and someone else in the church? And have you done anything to resolve it? We are in a war, and there are battles all around us. There's a battle for unity, a battle for truth, a battle for souls. These are not battles that are fought with physical weapons. They're not fought with violence, but they are fought with a righteous life and genuine love. They are battles that are fought with the grace that we receive from God. Everyone in this room has received the grace of God. The question is, have you received it in vain? As believers, are you pouring out the grace that you have received from God? Are you pouring that grace out upon the lives of others? Have you truly been reconciled to God? Or are you self-deceived, thinking you're okay when you're really not? For those of you who have received the grace of God and have not received it in vain, I encourage you this morning in the battles. I encourage you to see the difficulties of ministry of the Christian life in light of what Christ has done for you and in light of what lies ahead in eternity in heaven with Him. For some of you, there is a battle going on for your soul even now because you have received the grace of God in vain. Maybe you're self-deceived and have not truly been reconciled to God. You think you're okay, but you're not. Or maybe you have been reconciled to God, but your life has not really begun to, to serve Him. You're not living out your faith. You're not putting the grace of God into action. Either way, I call you this morning not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you haven't been living out your faith, then I would call you to begin to do so. Don't take that grace of God that he has given you. Don't take the spiritual gifts that he has graced you with and keep them for yourself. But pour them out on others for the glory of God and for the good of those that you minister to. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I would call you this morning to bow your knee to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Lord, that though we can face many difficulties in this life, many difficulties even when we're doing Your work and doing it for the right reasons, in the right ways, Lord. Even though in the midst of all of that we can face difficulties, we know that, Lord, we are still doing your work. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be glorified in everything that we do. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength for the battles, that you would give us the same kind of endurance that Paul had, and I pray that you would help us not to be deceived by the work of the enemy, that we would not be naive and miss the schemes that he puts in place. Lord, whether it's obvious false teaching, a word that 
causes distrust or disunity with someone else in the body or a leader. Lord, even if it's some small hurt that we let fester and grow, Lord, may we not be Lord, may we not be embittered against one another. Lord, may you unify us, Lord, around your truth, around your word, and around a, a common love for you and for one another. Lord, may you use this church and this body for your glory and for your, for your kingdom. Lord, we ask that you would just give us the strength that we need, that you might be glorified in all things. And we ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.